welcome to the Proper Mental Podcast. Normalising open and honest conversations about mental health by having open and honest conversations about mental health. Proper Mental, episode 38. And for this episode, I am joined by Claire Easton, who is an author, an award-winning mental health blogger, campaigner, and keynote speaker. And Claire and I caught up over Zoom to chat about about anxiety, and uh, particularly social anxiety, and panic attacks, and fear, and all that good stuff, you know? All that nice, calm, relaxing conversation. And so I kind of found out about Claire uh, when I read her latest book, which is one of the best mental health related books that I've read. And it is the best titled book, I think, that I've read out of all books. But it's called um, Fuck, I Think I'm Dying, which is a fantastic name for a book. I think you'll agree, particularly one that's about panic attacks. And um, this book, we talk about it a lot in the conversation, so I'm not going to run on about it here. But it had like a real kind of um, quite powerful effect on me, I suppose. Um, anxiety is something... Um, or my version of anxiety is something that I'm kind of learning as I go about. It's quite a, a recent thing for me, not the experience, but the learning about it. And Claire's book was so relatable to me. You know, there was bits of it that, you know, which she was writing about herself and she could easily have been writing about me. And I took a lot from it. And um, yeah, I knew then that I really, really needed to chat to her on the podcast. Because I think if it's worked like that for me, then it's going to work hopefully for a lot of people listening. And I'm so glad I did because she is awesome. And we talk about loads of cool stuff. So we talk about anxiety and the language around anxiety, right? And the difference between feeling a bit anxious um, versus anxiety as a condition. We chat about particularly social anxiety and how that kind of manifests. We talk about uh, childhood stuff. We talk about um, workplace pressures and stresses. We talk about writing. You know, we really go down the rabbit hole on this one. And Claire has been researching and talking about and writing about mental health for so long now that she, you know, she just has so much knowledge at her fingertips. And it was brilliant to just ask a question. And she just had these amazing answers just, just there. Um, and it was really, really good fun. And I think because of because the way Claire is, she's so comfortable with talking about these things. It was a real laugh as well. And I was like, I don't know, it's always a strange thing to say, isn't it, when you're talking about an anxiety chat. <laughs> but it was really good fun and we got on really well. And um, I would highly recommend her book. If you'd like to read some of her award-winning blogs, you can go to www.allmadhere.co.uk. She's all over social media, at Claire Eastham UK. Her first book is called We're All Mad Here. And the second one, fuck, I think I'm dying. Uh, that's the one that we talk most about during the chat. And you can get them wherever you get books from. That's up to you. Shop local, innit? Um, if you want to get hold of me, at Proper Mental Podcast on all social media platforms, you can email me via the website, www.propermentalpodcast.com. If you do follow me on social media, you've probably been aware that I've been banging on about my live event pretty much non-stop. And yeah, tickets are on sale now. There's about 20 tickets left. So I had, I got... 
I think I put 60 on sale. I got given the option of 70. So I put 60 on sale and we've got 20 left to sell. So um, it's not even been on sale a week. So that's done really well. So if you're thinking about doing it, don't sit on the fence, grab a ticket because I think they're going to sell out and it should be a really, really fun night. I've got two incredible guests. I'm not going to talk about it too much here, but go over to at Mental Podcast on Instagram and yeah, all the stuff is there and the link in my bio to get yourself a ticket. There's a link in these episode notes as well. I think that's everything. Please leave me a review. I'm not had one for a little while. It'd be really, really nice if you did. One thing I found recently is um, some guests that you contact, they have all these like prerequisite criteria that you have to meet before they'll do your podcast. And it's people that get a lot of a lot of offers. And one of them is the amount of episodes, which I'm good for because I've done bloody loads of them. One of them is the amount of guests, again, which is awesome because I've had some amazing guests. But one thing that's letting me down is the amount of reviews I've got. So although I've got loads of downloads and I've got all these great guests, I haven't got enough reviews to tick some of the boxes. So it would be great if you could do me a solid. If you're a previous guest, you're allowed to review yourself. That's fine. Just jump on there. If you're listening on Spotify, but you do have an iPhone, you can still review even though you haven't listened to it on Apple just do it. It takes me two seconds. And um, it takes me two seconds. I haven't reviewed it. Well, I have. I did the first ever review. But anyway, um, <laughs> you've got to get the ball rolling. It takes you two seconds and you only need to leave a sentence or two. And it really, really is appreciated. It's how I get in the Apple charts. It's how people, um, you know, find out about the podcast. It really, really is important. And it would be great if you could do me a solid and leave me a review. That'd be great. Other than that, that's everything you need to know. This is Proper Mental, episode 38, with Claire Easton. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy. So here we are with another episode of the Proper Mental podcast, and my guest this week is Claire Easton. How are you, mate? I'm good. I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. I'm, you probably hear my voice. I'm full of cold today. Um, I, it's September, so that's like lurgy month in our house because I've got small kids and like my son's just started a, a new school year. So he's got loads of new kids to mingle with and catch their germs and bring them home and stuff like oh. that. So we're all full of it. I had one, that's why we had to reschedule originally. I had one a couple of weeks ago. And I think it's because, you know, we've been in lockdown for essentially two years and everything's COVID, COVID, COVID. When you get a cold after that long, you think, oh, right, shit, this is what it feels like. And this is actually quite rotten as well, but it completely knocks you out. Yeah, we're probably all a bit too clean. You know, all that hand sanitizer and stuff. Yeah, we need more. It really knocked me out this one. I was like in bed and everything. Oh, amazing. But yeah, other than that, I'm great. Thank you. And thank you for joining me. I'm really, um, really looking forward to this conversation. I really wanted to do a, like an anxiety specific conversation because I'm, I kind of feel like it can be very misunderstood. It can be underdiagnosed, overdiagnosed, and the language we use about anxiety really sort of murkies the water. Um, and that kind of like fascinates me really. But um, could we start with you, Claire, if that's all right? And how anxiety started to show up for you, how it started to, to manifest? Sure. So I, I think I was born anxious. I know a lot of people say, but I'm pretty sure I was. And my first kind of memory of it was when I was about eight years old. That's when I can first remember specific instant, um, things my parents would comment on, like going to even like family parties or gatherings. I'd get really like sick or nauseous before. 
And when I was there, I'd spent most of the time like hiding, hiding in um, literally like closets or in the kitchen with my grandma or um, like anything to avoid talking to an, to the adults because I think we forget for children, it's a big deal. Like you feel like you have to present almost, or at least I did. You know, you get all their attention in one go, and they say, "What have you been up to?" show us this dance I'll do that and it's a lot I think if that's not your personality so I remember that was the first time but then over the years it kind of it's murkier the memories and oh my god at secondary school I had a really bad problem with blushing for about a year that's when it really started being triggered anytime somebody spoke to me I just went the color of an angry tomato it was horrendous because you it's funny but then also you can't you kind of it was the fear of the blushing that was it and that would obviously trigger it. So that was school. And then I got officially diagnosed at the age of 24. So that's a long time. To, and that's because I had a, well, a nervous breakdown. I had my first ever panic attack in a meeting at work and legged it out the room. Literally legged it. And then it ran all the way down the street. And um, after that, I was signed off work for two months and officially diagnosed with social anxiety and panic attacks. Wow. I think like it's when these things start to manifest at like such a young age, we can tend to assume it's just our personality, right? We don't realize it's a, it's a thing. And was that the case for you in the build up to your, your panic act? Did you know that you were a- an anxious person or was, did you think that was just Claire? Oh, I always knew there's something wrong with me. <laughs> off. Like this is some off kilter about me. Or like, it's just, you just, I didn't really talk about it. I knew that I wasn't like, other people I knew that I found social things harder than other people like I remember specifically at work because I used to work in publishing book publishing and that's like you're supposed to be really gregarious and outgoing enthusiastic especially for like networking um which is my idea of hell like you want to go in a room with complete strangers and walk over and pretend you know what you're talking about and pretend you're really confident like no so I used to make notes and that's not normal I used to actually make notes of like conversation starters like just to be like ease myself into it so absolutely I knew like like something's not right here but I didn't really know what it was or what to do about it so I just plowed on yeah I suppose it becomes the um becomes the normal doesn't it you just used to managing that behavior it's really interesting you mentioned making notes there I used to do something similar I used to go to this gym and I used to like park around a corner and before the session started and I used to plan in my head what I would say to the people when I walked in how I'd greet them and then if I walked in and the person I planned to speak to like wasn't behind the desk then I'd just be like I don't know what to do and I'd just have that like freezing moment so I know exactly what you're saying there and I yeah I knew I was an I knew it was strange behavior, but it was so normal for me. It was just my behavior. So I didn't particularly worry about it or try to change it. I just kind of accepted it as a, a personality flaw. But it's actually really interesting what you mentioned about um, uh, kids there as well. And like, uh, yeah, forcing them to almost perform. And that's so true. And I think with children, we often forget that we treat them very different to adults, but they're exactly the same. And sometimes with my daughter, she's like naturally quite shy. I'm not even quite shy. She has more shy days um, than, you know, maybe my son does. But when we're out and about and someone, you know, I bump into someone there, they try and talk to her and she doesn't want to talk to them. The first thing they say to her is like, oh, are you a bit shy? And I, I honestly, she, no, she's not shy. You're like massive and a little bit scary and she doesn't want to talk to you. It's very she normal behavior. Yeah. It's different now in my, like when I was a kid, it was a kind of, 
oh, she's shy. And parents would then try and bring you out of that shell because it's all about making the adult feel validated and comfortable rather than the child. Whereas now it's, I think we're a bit more child-centric in the sense of like, oh no, she's fine. She's just, you can talk to me. You know, kind of. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'd love to say like, she just doesn't want to talk to you, mate. Sorry. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, and just, n- neither do I. For being honest, I just stopped because I'm, I'm polite. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so when um after that that first breakdown, Claire, when that kind of um you know everything boiled to a head, was that a case of anxiety over time in the workplace, like just building up and up and up until like a an explosion? Is that kind of how it came about? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the the foundations of anxiety. Really, it it doesn't happen overnight. It's layer upon layer upon layer. Um, one of my favorite quotes actually is from I can't remember his name. It's the, the brain. Um, I'm a minute. The world changed faster than the brain could evolve, meaning that it's you know back in the day, primitive times, where we used to we were exposed to very real danger, immediate danger, sort of like being chased by a wild animal, and then it would stop when that danger was removed. Whereas in modern culture. It's there all the time, those stresses. It's not danger, but it's like drip-fed. We are drip-fed stressors too. Does this person like me? Am I going to be on time for this? Is that presentation going to go well? Am I going to get these grades? I must post this, put this up on social media. So that's how it happens. And that's definitely how it happened with me over years of, I don't like doing this, but I have to because it's expected of me. I must succeed academically to the point of breaking myself, which I nearly did. I... Then I have to get a job that looks good to other people and then succeed at that job. And it just kind of started getting worse and worse. And I was putting more and more pressure on myself and completely ignoring all these signs. That When I look back now, I cringe because it's kind of like insomnia, losing loads of weight, sweating all the time, like developed this very real trauma, trauma tremor that I still have. Uh, all this stuff like dry mouth and I just kept ignoring it like no 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 no. once we get here it'll be fine and that was the anxiety it was my brain telling me that we're not comfortable with this and the only thing I think to this day I would still be there that made me stop and listen was a panic attack because a panic attack is violent and the symptoms will not be ignored you know you can't breathe your heart's pounding everything just feels wrong uh because your amygdala the brain thinks you're in danger so I think the original question because I've gone off on a tangent yes um it 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 kind of happened all for many many years for me yeah I think so many people will relate to that that all those tiny I was um when I talk about my own story I was talk could describe it as death by a thousand paper cuts and it just like all these different things and yeah all those societal expectations that you mentioned there and then there's all the um you know, you can't walk down the street without horns. Well, where I live anyway, horns, sirens, lights, music, but like all these, all these things And my favorite. And I've said it too many times on the podcast is like the human brain is only designed to travel as fast as you can run. And then on a regular basis, you'll put it in a car, ping it down a motorway at 70 miles an hour and wonder why we're stressed when we turn up at the office, you know, like it's. I love that because one of the chapters of my new book is about flying and it's the same thing. Like people tend to report feeling more emotional on airplanes and not understanding why even people who are not prone to crying, it's because we're not supposed to be there. <laughs> yeah, the brain quite might be kind of quite like, especially the change in air pressure and like it's, we're not supposed to be there. So yeah. of course you're on edge. That's it. And like that's it's society. So no one ever stops to, um, you know, just take a step back 
and say, hang on a minute, out of context, this is really bizarre what we're doing and I'm not okay with this and then we ignore the signs and it's too easy isn't it when you feel like crap to like I don't know take a paracetamol you know have a few drinks all that and all that stuff is normalized as well so it just um it just builds builds up and up and up yeah how did you after that first panic attack how did you go about getting diagnosed how did what what sort of happened in the aftermath of that Claire well after you run out of a meeting room and leg it down the street you can't really hide it anymore so I went straight to uh, I was went straight because home because I was living in London at the time but home is actually Bolton so I went back home to my parents and we went to the family doctor and I got diagnosed in under two minutes I've never heard of this before social anxiety like back in 2012 2011 it wasn't as prevalent in the UK to talk about it these specific things anyway so I didn't expect to say that I thought she would say like oh you're insane so we'll be calling the white van. But she didn't. She was really matter of fact about it and just said, oh, it's social anxiety disorder and panic attacks. And I was devastated, to be honest, because I, I wanted something more. I wanted some something that would make other people act, react to what was happening, not just like, okay, well, we'll try you on this medication, which might work, but we won't know for at least six weeks and we'll put you on the waiting list for therapy. And it, I was kind of desperate and I had to keep reminding her of what I'd done and how I'd behaved. And she said, no, that sounds about normal. I'm like, right. And, you think, and then I just felt like I was let, like discharged and then just left in this absolute void of confusion, like falling down this rabbit hole. And I just didn't know what it was or how I was going to get better. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's useful to have a, a diagnosis, isn't it? And like a starting point. But then, yeah, what what next? I say this a lot of time with talking about mental health because it's fantastic that the conversation's out there and there'll always be a need for awareness. But personally speaking, I'm aware now. So it's like, what next? What do we do with all this awareness, right? That's the bit that's missing, isn't it? Is the next the next step and particularly in that in that medical process, I think. That's why I actually I'm, a, I'm an ambassador for the charity MQ, which they actually fund scientific research into mental illness with the aim to look for treatments. Oh, fantastic. Treatment better medication better therapy you know it doesn't it shouldn't be this is as good as it gets you know it's like no 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 no. It, it you know if it's cancer for example quite rightly they're doing extensive research it's not the same for mental illness and that claims if like potentially more lives so yeah. it's like it it's absolutely what are we doing next yeah, very much so. And trying to be um, proactive rather than reactive, isn't it? I think the the mental health epi- epidemic, for want of a better term, has kind of like, it's caught, caught everyone out. Society wasn't ready for it. As much as society has caused a lot of it, it just wasn't ready for this this wave, this onslaught. And um, yeah, we've, we're on the, it's, everyone's on the back foot. So yeah, the fact that there's people like that out there is um is incredible i'll put some links to that in the episode notes if anyone wants yeah. to go and like check check those out because i think those conversations are really um yeah are really really important yeah so how did the the rebuild from there so you know you've had this diagnosis you've kind of lost it lost at sea a bit falling down the rabbit hole so how did you start to kind of figure this this stuff out um research i mean for starters first of all i had to accept i really it was my mom convinced me like you're ill like you're really poorly like I know you're desperate to find a cure or whatever you do because I'm really proactive naturally borderline obsessive it's like great but like you need to heal like if you've broken your leg or if you had you know gastro flu 
you wouldn't be like, okay, I'm going to try and research this as much as I can. Like, no, 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 no. You need at least two weeks of doing nothing in front of the TV and eating what you want and doing like just you have to rest. So I did that, which is really, really important. I can't stress that enough. We we don't really give the same consideration to the brain as we do the body. Uh, so I did that for a bit, and then probably about three weeks in, I thought I'm going to start researching this because if I understand it. I always use this quite crass example of, you know, if a girl pulled down her knickers one day and, you know, there's blood there and she didn't know what it was, you'd be terrified. So, like, I really think that knowledge is power and it's comforting. So I'll start looking into this. And it was a lot harder than I thought because back then it was uh, it was all, like, the information was littered with, like, medical jargon that I didn't understand or it was really bleak in tone. So that's how the blog started my blog we're all mad here because i thought i'm gonna start translating some of this and it's about like a project for me but also for other people like well, well this is how i've dealt with this so this is where i am with that and it was a bloody long road for me uh it took about a year to get back to where i was because from there i had to learn all right so i know what social anxiety is fine great it was the panic attacks which were the worst because that's so debilitating and when they happen you know if you believe that you're going crazy or you're having a heart attack it's it's pretty difficult to be like okay well you know just um we'll do it. i'll meditate we'll do this like what i don't understand what's happening so i like i did all the research into what the symptoms were which i thought was amazing i was so galvanized by it you know the because they feel random and they're not they're all tailored to make you survive like for example the excessive sweating is so that you will be slippery to a predator. How cool is that? That's awesome, isn't it? Yeah. It's so cool. Or like um, the rapid heartbeat is obviously because you've got all this extra adrenaline because you need the energy. Or another one of my favourite, because the worst symptom for me was I felt like my limbs were really heavy and numb, like I couldn't move them. And that apparently is your blood vessels retreating further into tissue so that if you get struck, you won't bleed out. Wow, yeah. That's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. So and cool. it, it's so, um, when you speak about it in those terms, it's so primal, isn't it? You know, it really, you can see why it would be effective when we were getting attacked by saber-toothed tigers. But, you know, now the saber-toothed tiger's in your inbox, isn't it? It's not... Uh, yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. exactly it. We've replaced, like, tigers for boardrooms. and But it's, uh, for the recovery, though, that was it. I was galvanised by this kind of, I was, I felt like I was lost for so long and that there was something wrong with me. But with panic, it's like, no, 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 no. Your body's behaving exactly as it should do. Like, it's brilliant. It's designed to keep you alive. It's just been triggered in error. That's what's happened. I'm like, ah. So it was from there I could learn why it had been triggered. And that's how I kind of learned more about, well, it's because you weren't taking care of yourself at all. So the brain decided to step in. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a mad system really isn't it Cause when we kind of ignore these these signals for so long you know i always think of it as it's almost like you know if me and you were having some sort of uh debate and maybe you felt that i wasn't taking on your point of view then you would perhaps raise your voice and that's exactly what the brain does right it just raises its voice raises its voice until the in the end it's like right i'm just gonna have to take control of this and um make my 100%. make the decision I'm like, well, something i say a lot is the way it works is eventually with panic and breakdowns is uh the brain isn't doesn't care about making a tit out of yourself you know in front of john from hr he doesn't care 
he doesn't have any boundaries. Like if he, he thinks you're in danger and you're not listening, then it will override everything. And that's what happens. You know, it took 24 years for me, but um, and it, it will happen. And it's so it shouldn't really be surprising that it happens to so many of us. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think I um there's a I can't remember what the book's called. It's called like the stress cycle or something like that. It's written by two American sisters, and they talk about um like stress is circular 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 and um they said that if you watch like a zebra in the wild and it escapes from a lion attack it'll get around the corner to a place of safety and lie on the floor and just convulse and shake and use all that stuff um but with us in, we just we go from one stressful situation to the next to the next and we never like process that that stuff you know it, it's um that that kind of just builds up in our system it be, i think of it as like a stew you know, uh, it yeah. Adrenaline is like electricity, and if you don't get rid of it, where's it going to go? Well, and what's worse is rather than shaking, for example, um, is really natural. It's venting energy, and like we're embarrassed about that. So it's like, oh, sorry, but you try and stop yourself, and you think, oh, I'll have a drink instead because that will stop it. And you think, no, this is totally normal. Why are you embarrassed about this? Or crying, you know, we're embarrassed about that. It's like, whereas laughter, funny enough, and this is why I use humor a lot laughter is acceptable so you can swell up and try and joke which is not always helpful but it has been in the past for me i'm like well i need to get this out so i need to laugh yeah yeah like temporarily just shifting that state a little bit so you can catch a catch a breath yeah that ties in nicely i is something that you've kind of mentioned before about these um like these things that are recommended for you know looking after and dealing with it and i think in mental health there's a lot of these things that are great for um maintaining good mental health and you know nature exercise yoga all these things but they're they're good for maintaining good mental health they're not great when you're in the pits and they get banded about a little bit too easily so Mm -hmm. you know off the back of a massive panic attack and someone said oh you know just go for a run might not be appropriate you know we have to find these smaller ways don't we of getting ourselves to the point where then some of these bigger things can work for us that's kind of my my take on it yeah i mean yeah that, that's like i could be really careful because i've like actually i didn't ask you am i allowed to swear on this podcast yes of course yes okay i shit on meditation a lot <laughs> it's not that I, I disagree with it um or begrudge anybody for doing it i think if it works fantastic great doesn't work for me so please don't tell me to meditate or then try this one like it's i'm a very especially when i'm anxious or hyped up or whatnot it's like i don't want to lie still at all and focus on my breathing because i don't feel like i can breathe um exercise is the one i tend to go for like i'll go for a walk if i'm having a panic attack not after because i'm exhausted but um that's that is one that i that i'll go to that one food oh god i hate when people say it but it's true like what have you thought about like your diet i'm like those cloths give me something that will work and i know it is a lot about how i treat myself and great but it would just be really nice if like so many physical disorders and illnesses they said take this and it'll help you know yeah, it's short term but take this and it'll help not take this and it might help it might make you worse like what it wouldn't be acceptable for anything else it's really bizarre no, so um, so true. Yeah. So, do, do you have to then go on and do a? Did you do a lot of work on yourself, player, to kind of figure out where this 
where this sort of came from because there's one thing that really stood out from your um from your book which i really enjoyed i've got it here and um there was a a a little bit where you were talking about how you see your like your place in the world and doing stuff for societal reasons and maybe not embracing like your true authentic self and that's something that that's something for my for me that um that i've kind of investigated loads i'm obsessed with this idea of authenticity and how living an unauthentic life really has such a huge impact on people's mental health and i was reading that section of the book in bed before i went to sleep and i had to i put it down because i had such a it was so relatable what you were to, what you were writing about i kind of thought you know what i just want to process that and it's a nice moment it wasn't an awful realize some realizations are awful aren't they but it was a really nice one i thought you know what i just i don't need to read anymore i just want to sit with that because it i just identified with it so so hard it was um yeah did, did you have to kind of what did you use to start making those realizations about yourself? First of all, that's really lovely to hear. Thank you. What a compliment. I do. A lot of people will actually message me and say, I loved it, but I had to read it in chunks because I, I kept getting not triggered, but like such a rush of adrenaline. And it's like, yeah, I, I get it. Cause you think, Oh my God, that's me. Like I've done it so many times with reading and when you get too hyped up, but that's good. It means I'm doing my job. Very much. So. Um, why did I get to that point? Christ, it sounds like um, tragic and I don't mean it to, but I pretty much grew up thinking that I wasn't right, as in like I didn't behave in the way that everybody else did and like I was wrong, not the world. There was something wrong with me, as in shy, like my own company, don't particularly want to perform, or, uh, interested in weird stuff like history or creative writing or like, that kind of stuff. And you kind of... There's only so many times you can be told that you're weird or she's shy or criticised before you start thinking like, ah, okay, well, I need to change. And I think that's definitely more prevalent for women too, unfortunately. <clears throat> because on top of that, you have to be pretty, you know, don't be too bossy or that kind of stuff. But it's like, okay, so you, and as a child, you pick up on that. You pick up on positive and negative cues. I'm just going to take a drink because I'm starting to croak. <clears throat> so I just, because I'm, I've got quite an obsessive personality anyway and like a drive to succeed. So I thought, right, I'll just change everything about my personality then and I'll become this person. And unfortunately, this person was well, very, very well received. Um, and academically as well, I realized, oh, this validates me because when I do really well at school, Everybody loves it and really proud of me. So the next logical step is to get a job that everybody thinks is great. And all this stuff will validate me and make me worthy as a person. Whereas before, I don't know who that person was. So it's like, we'll go with this version. And you keep going and you keep going and you keep going. And to the point where you realize you're absolutely miserable, but you don't know how to stop. And I think it's, I'm still working on it. You know, I wrote the book and it's true. You know, it's, it's an ongoing process of, trying to be as authentic as I can rather than you think and a lot of not this podcast but in a lot of interviews particularly when I'm doing press for the book the way they talk to you and you're like you know what they want I'm like well that's not me sorry I can pretend to be like oh my god you know totally we should do this and we should meet up and we should I'm like but so yeah blabbering but it's an ongoing process with me and I think it it started quite young and it develops mm, yeah it, it's a it's a tricky one isn't it because 
like for me, I spent so long pretending to be, you know, almost like a different face for every different facet of my life. I, I lost sight. I became so adrift of the real me. And that's that's my current journey. My current mission is to kind of figure that stuff out and put it all back together. But I now know that had a huge impact on like on my mental health and stuff like that. So, you know, me personally, I found stuff like journaling and therapy, big fan of talking therapy. That's helped me to work a lot of, a lot of stuff out, but um, yeah, that's kind of the mission in modern life, isn't it? To find, find the real you and then learn how to be comfortable with that while putting it out into, out into the world. And that's, that's really, really, really challenging. Eh? It's so challenging. And I've never been happier than I have in the last couple of years being myself even though my biggest problem actually going through it was like, am I just being really self-indulgent? Like, who the hell do I think I am? Like, that I can talk about, oh, I'm not being my truest me. Like, no, it's not like that. It's, <laughs> this is part of the illness. It, it belittles you and tells you that this is self-indulgent and pathetic and you need to stop. I'm like, no, that's part of the problem. Yeah, it's very much perfectly so. Okay, perfectly okay. Like, with children, it's so much easier. You know, they are encouraged to be I don't know who they are to an extent. Whereas adults, it feels a little bit like, actually, no, I shouldn't do that. I should just knuckle down. Yeah. And that, you know, that starts so young, is it with those children? Like they've got so much freedom and then they start school and it sits still, be seen and not heard. Don't fidget, yeah. put your hand up. And it just starts this, this thing then, doesn't it? You know, um, that production line to get you into a workplace where you behave the same way and it just, just yeah. snowballs. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I don't know when you look about it, it's, we're just, We've got it so wrong, haven't we? Us, us human beings. It's just it's uh, hard because two of my best mates are teachers, so we've had this argument many a time. Like I do appreciate there has to be some structure. Like there has to be, and this is the system that works. But I'm like, it's just really sad that it, it doesn't work for like mm. one in every ten children. Like so many people who I talk to have messaged me for years, say that the problem started at school. And yeah. they've just got traumatic memories of what it was like at school. So I'm like, I can really, really relate. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, so much of with anxiety, particularly, I think, with social anxiety is the the self-esteem, um, you know, aspect of it. And I think when we talk, I kind of mentioned before about the language around anxiety and we think of it as, I don't know, like really aggressive nerves. And but we don't ever think of the reasons for that or the, you know, the thing behind the thing, which is so common in all different aspects of mental health and mental illness is the thing behind the thing behind the thing. Right. And, uh, but yeah, the self-esteem aspect is um, yeah, is, is huge. I always think the best way I describe it with me is that if you said to me, Claire, would you like to go out and um, I don't know if we were friends and you said, do you want to go out and grab something to eat? I say, yeah, that'd be brilliant. And if you said to me, do you want to go to a gig? There's going to be 80,000 people. I'd go, yeah, completely. Yeah, fantastic. That sounds great. If you said to me, me and five or six mates are going for dinner, do you want to come? Uh-uh. <laughs> that, that to me, that's my idea of hell. Because in the first example, we know each other. So that's fine. In the second one, there's 80,000 people. No one cares about me. I'm completely face, faceless. That's fine. But when I have to rely on my own personality and talk about me because I have self-esteem issues and low self-worth, that to me is that's particularly gets really really scary and that's how i like to um describe my own personal brand of um of social anxiety i suppose that's so interesting and it is textbook in the best way because i'm the same hmm. it's like it's that it's suddenly like do you want to come for coffee with me and these three other people i'm like no you're all right i think i'll just 
because they're like, you're all going to look at me. Um, I'm just, rather than being present in the conversation, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to analyze everybody's body language, facial expressions, looking for signs that they think I'm weird, or I'll be thinking about what I need to say next rather than listening to what you're saying. So don't get me wrong, I can do it. You know, it's, I'm at a place now where I can do it, but I wouldn't engage in that regularly because I just don't like it. Yeah. So I'm saying, well, the self-esteem, absolutely. Like it's, you spend so much time thinking that, oh God, you're so boring or you're really weird or like you're not like everybody else. You're not, it, it can be difficult to be present. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Do you have any um any tips for that? Do you like uh you know reparent yourself or whatever they call it, you know, or gratitude practices or anything like that to try and kind of switch turn turn that on its head a little bit? In the moment, or like before, or after. E- either or, really, yeah, either or. Alcohol? No, complete joke. Absolute <laughs> joke. Don't do that. It's it's a quick fix. Yeah, but again, it, it, with social anxiety, it's so acceptable. You know, so it's it's like the the ultimate way to um I I haven't had a drink for just over five years. And when I stopped drinking, that was like, although it was great for me physically, mentally it was like a collapse because I had no no idea how to even act in these situations that I'd cruised through drunk, you know. So yeah, alcohol is like it's so tricky, isn't it? Hundred percent. It's something I'm really interested in because it's demonized. Um but without available support what do you how are we so surprised that it happens and then when they're in this you know people get into that state you then tell them off and criticize them for getting there because there's definitely points where I've been a bit okay this is getting out of hand like we need to look at this and like really review like you're using it too much as a crutch but I see why it happens but no don't don't use that as a (laughs) that's not my tip Uh, (laughs) it's I think me it's preparation beforehand and then when I come back decompressing allowing myself to decompress a little bit beforehand I don't actually think it's too bad to have a few conversation starters lined up just in case you think if just it just if it gives you a bit of peace of mind that's fine and little things like making sure you're not late you know so you don't always already arrive like jacked up on adrenaline um you can arrive first if that makes you feel more comfortable so you can get a bit you know acclimatized or whatnot um and then when you're in it i mean if you it depends how comfortable you feel like if you want to tell your friends in advance i might be a bit weird at first because of this this and this great and then like i say afterwards think like oh that was cool that i did that like well done and then maybe go for a walk to burn it off or just have some quiet time i think it's really important if you put yourself in a situation that's going to stress you out to think afterwards i need a bit of bit of downtime yeah yeah and just let it let it go i i've it's, it's talking about it isn't it we, you know the whole talking about it thing in the conversation about mental health but when you sort of own your own story i mm-hmm. found that really really empowering you know when mm. you kind of like wear it on you when you talk about mental health a lot and you wear it on your sleeve um that, that it helps loads doesn't it because you just kind of own it rather than um rather than hide it absolutely yeah owning it is, mm. is absolutely the word so it's it's just not that weight on your shoulder anymore you can say I mean, I use the word crazy and mad quite a lot. And I like to reclaim those words. I just will say I'm just a bit mad. Sorry, just give me a minute. Like, I'm just having a wobble. Hang on a minute. You know, in the same way you would if someone felt a bit nauseous or yeah. a bit dizzy. Like, just give me a minute. It doesn't have to end the day. Like, I think that's what happens. We think, oh, God, I've humiliated myself. I have to leave. Like, no, it doesn't. Like, just give it a minute and it'll pass. But the fact that you can say it out loud just releases a bit of that pressure. 
Yeah, it's like a really interesting thing there, isn't there? Because like, you know, for me, if like my self-esteem is low enough, self-esteem is low enough that I would um, struggle in those situations, but also think that much of myself that me saying something daft is going to ruin everyone else's night. Yeah. That just It just doesn't make sense, does it, at all? No, it doesn't. It's like, well, you just ruined the day. Congratulations. Like, what? No, you haven't. You just rushed a bit and sweated and said you felt a bit weird, like. Yeah, no one cares. No one cares. Yeah. But I I think um yeah, this language around um anxiety, I'll try and get back, try and get back on my point. But I think how we talk about it really is such a commonplace word. And I think because it becomes so commonplace, it maybe doesn't people really misunderstand it. I used to say that anxiety wasn't a problem for me. I used to say, oh yeah, you know, depression was my thing. I was never really anxious. And then the more I found out about anxiety, it's like, oh crap, yeah, this has been like a lifelong thing. And, you know, it kind of paved the way for the, for the other stuff. But people will say stuff like, um, you know, like, oh, my anxiety was through the roof. And you think, well, it, it wasn't because anxiety is a very normal, useful feeling, isn't it? It's only when we lose control of it and it's it goes mm-hmm. on to, automatic pilot it becomes a problem so people say my anxiety was through the roof and you go well that's how you're supposed to feel before a a driving test or a a job interview but because we use it so commonplace it almost takes something from anxiety as a disorder I think is what I'm trying to say I love that yeah because funny enough some of the the greatest pushback I got whilst writing the new book is the amount of people who are determined to point out that um what I have is normal like um that it's not, you know, Claire, everybody gets nervous before they do a presentation or everybody feels like this, you know, kind of belittling it. I'm like, no, 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 no. You're thinking of nerves or low-level anxiety because of this, like, oversaturation of the word being used. Like, no, no, what this is serious. If I could literally transfer it over as to how I'm feeling right now, it's not. Like, this is this amount of anxiety isn't healthy to the extent that it's affecting my daily routine it's affecting my behavior it's affecting my sleep it's uh but because i think i agree you know it is it's great that it's out there as a word but it, it's a condition yeah. it's um it, as much as you know it's not it's like i suppose it used to be called like a nervous disorder or a nervous disposition my grandma used to say like she's just got she's a nerves which i'm really annoyed about this back in the day you could just take laudanum I think I was born in the wrong era. It would have been much easier. Yeah, yeah, it, it, yeah. It, it, it's almost like we need a new word. It's great that we make it, that the word's acceptable because then it's not so scary and it's not hasn't got all these awful connotations about um, you know mental hospitals and all this sort of stuff. But at the same time, yeah, it just gets banded around and it really steals something. And I something I've seen over the last few years. Um, I suppose just because of my own like lived experience and the sort of social media accounts that I come into contact with is this, this like coaching environment of people, you know, like trying to coach their way out of anxiety. And, you know, there's a, there's a real big trend at the moment of saying like, you know, you know, you're not anxious. You're just confused about your excitement and stuff like that. And you say, well, there is, there is that, but if we're looking at a scale and this is not to belittle anyone's experience of anything, because that's not what I'm trying to do, but there's very much, yeah, there is a scale to this stuff, isn't it? And once we start, once we move past ordinary everyday anxiety, then there's not, for me, you can't, you know, in you can't flip that script and just sort of have coach your way out of it or force your way out of it. It's only going to fight back harder, right? 100%. It makes me laugh you saying that actually, because it's true. It's There's so much kind of like think positive, positive your way out of this. Like, I'm like, 
are you joking? Can you imagine saying to that someone with a broken leg, like just positive your way out of this? If you think positive, keep thinking positive, and like it's not you've not broke your leg. Do you know what? It's just this thing, and you're like, what? What are you talking about? Like I appreciate the proactiveness, I really do, but I think each person is different, and yeah. what they need is different. There's definitely a place for it, you know, mm. a kind of when you go to the really dark side of I'm never going to get better or this is my life now I think it's nice to have an injection of positivity and that kind of energy or like I'm great cynic mate and that's my personality I'm a cynic born bred and I'm fine with that and I'm still all right you know it's like (laughs) I don't I think it's it's not particularly for me I'm more like knowledge lived experience talking about it yeah yeah I love the idea of um having more control over my life I try and do that I try and you know if I have a bad day it's normally because of my actions building up to that day it's not normally a coincidence so I like that idea of control and I like that idea of enough self-awareness to maybe see things coming rather than at at the other end of it being like ah crap I missed that one but um so yeah and that I think the coaching stuff really really helps with that but the idea that we can just like flip that script is um yeah, it's a it's a, a bad a bad narrative. Yeah, how how was writing about it with like blogs and books and stuff like that? Do, does that help you process things, Claire? Does that because it's unusual, isn't it? You write a book, you've got to talk about it, and yet the thing that you're writing about is not easy to talk about. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, no, you know that's that's it. That's the nail on the head. Writing about it is so therapeutic for me. So therapeutic. Talking about it, talking about writing it is so triggering because. Um, when I'm writing about it, it's just me and it just comes out with comes out of my head and I can almost reprocess it because that's my favourite mode of communication anyway. Like I often joke that I'm better on paper than I am in person. And I mean it. <laughs> you know, I, everybody sounds much more clever or witty or whatnot in writing, as you can think about it. You know, it gives me a breather. Great. Talking about it, like when journalists will ask me about it afterwards. And I don't know this person that can be quite traumatic for me, especially when they, because they always want to talk about the really bleak stuff. Mm. It's never the positive because that's what they want. So you're like, so at the time you were in hospital, nearly walked into ongoing traffic. I'm like, oh, I wasn't ready for that. That's um, straight to the juggler kind of thing. Um, yeah, that's really good. It's something I'm so um, conscious of when I do this. If I use like little sound bites and stuff like that, I always keep it on the positive on the the line that someone talks about you know the recovery or the beauty of life now or always that stuff because i there is that thing in the mental health conversation it's almost like to sell it we really focus on really really the dark stuff and me personally i think there is a place for that but you you, people have to work towards that place that shouldn't be the advertising that shouldn't be the the tagline or the hook to to get people in and like you say journalists i would imagine yeah they must sort of you know sniff for that because just saying like oh i felt a bit anxious and had a glass of wine and went home early that's yeah, not, yeah. <laughs> not what anyone wants right <laughs> no it isn't i totally understand it like i've got a lot of friends in pr i know it's like everybody's fighting for attention out there but and i'm happy to go there you know i wrote about it so i'm very happy to go there it's just it can be distressing sometimes if i don't get a good vibe from the person but i i worry about that because Reading those kind of lines, like, I nearly walked into one going traffic. It's going to terrify people. You know, if that was me, but I'm, I'm not reading that because I'm not there yet and I'm terrified that's going to happen to me. So you kind of 
lose this opportunity to learn. Like if you actually read the piece, it's like full of information about what I've learned. But stuff like that, I think it really frightens people. Yeah, definitely. Context, isn't it? Context is so, so important. Yeah. That we write about that in the first chapter of your book, that almost right reads like um fiction. I had the same feeling reading that, like as if when I'm reading fiction and it's like an exciting, like a chase through the city, or you know, like it really was. Um, yeah, how you articulated those feelings was fantastic. And I'd recommend anyone with an interest to um to check that out because it's like it's a powerful read. It's really, really um, yeah, it's really awesome. That is like, sorry, again, one of the greatest compliments you could give me that it reads like fiction because, funny enough, that's what I want to do next. And that's what a few people have said, like certain things that reads like fiction. I'm like, I don't know if on some level I'm trying to make it more entertaining or because all that really happened. And I've just mm. got a very descriptive memory and I can remember like exactly how I felt and exactly what that room looked like. But so I don't intentionally go there to be sensationalist, but... Yeah, I think there is an element in there of me being like, I want this to engage people a little bit. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, it's relatable as well. So it's not, you know, and I think so many people will have experienced that or something similar. And one thing that really fascinates me about the mental health conversation is how, say, for instance, just using us as an example, because we're here, how, you know, we're here now, but how things manifest for me and how things manifest for you were very, very different. But when I was reading your story, there was so many moments where I was like, well, oh, that's a bit of me. And I think regardless of the, the diagnosis or the outcome or the situation, whatever you want to say, the underlying stuff, it just overlaps, doesn't it? it? There's something so human about it. Once you start exploring these things on a slightly deeper level, um, and I think people really you know, connect with with that element about blogging and writing about mental health. Totally, because we all have it. You know, you described what I keep using the broken leg analogy. If you described what it was like having a broken leg to somebody who'd had one, you'd be like, oh yeah. Uh, but so it's the same with mental health. Like if you're experiencing this condition, then you've probably felt like this or had these thoughts. And I think it's just great to have that reaffirmed. You know, like the amount of stuff I read, and I was like. <gasps> You just get so excited and you just feel kind of less alone out there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that's nice. Yeah, that's really nice. And just to kind of start to to wind down, Claire, just, you know, out of interest, how are you? How are you today, mate? How's, um, you know, how how's the panic? How's the, because in your book you mentioned, is it like 371 panic attacks was your mm. running total at that at that time? You know, is that number slowing down? Are you in a, in a good place with all that stuff? Yeah, I think I have uh, maybe one a month now. And it's always in the middle of the night. So I think I've had a bad dream or something like that. It's not. And now, because I know what it is, it's kind of second nature. I'll just be like, ah, it's, it's that. I'll get up for a bit and it'll go. Um, how am I now? You know, I'm, I've never been happier. And I even feel a bit shy and nervous about saying that. I'm very, very happy at the moment. Never been happier. Minus the cold. I've never been healthier. Uh, yeah, it's, it's still an ongoing process. You know, I still have bad days and that but um yeah i feel like i'm myself <laughs> oh mate yeah that's a lovely thing to be able to say isn't it and a, a really important message because you know when we're trying to heal when we're trying to recover whatever people want to talk talk it you can get back to where you were or you can get even better than where you were because where you were is kind of where everything started in the first place right so um it's just nice that we can kind of yeah push on and, and make things really good rather than than just good but yeah, oh, that was a bit of a happy ending, wasn't it? Claire, thank you so much for your time today, mate. I really, really enjoyed talking to you. It was great. I really appreciate you coming on. Absolute genuine pleasure.
Thank you for listening from the Proper Mental Podcast. Please like and subscribe. The Space Star.